3. We spent a lot of time here last week in this chapter. It's a chapter that uh, everybody in the church that believes in Jesus, everybody in the church recognizes is the messianic chapter. It refers to and speaks to that which Jesus the Messiah would do when he was to come. Of course, when Isaiah wrote these things, Jesus was several hundred years yet to come. But he writes and reveals by the Holy Ghost that which Jesus would accomplish through the work on the cross and through his sacrifice. Now, there's a Bible truth, a Bible doctrine, um, principle, I should say, that uh, is spoken of throughout Scripture, and that is this. Paul said it this way, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. What that means is very simply this. You can't build a Bible doctrine off of one thing that the Bible says. But if it says it over and over again, several times, two or three times, then it's something that God intends for you to understand. Now, we see that referred back to even in the, uh, in the earliest stages of the, of the Bible when it talks about the creation account in Genesis. There are two creation accounts, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2. One's a summary and one's a detailed account. But the reason that God did that himself was to establish the principle that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. So for that reason, the things that we see in the Bible that are spoken to in Scripture again and again are the things that God really wants us to understand and build our Christian lives upon. Well, in Isaiah 53, verse 4, we see one of these things identified in this foundation principle. Isaiah spoke by the Holy Ghost and said, Surely Jesus, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We talked to some degree about the words griefs and sorrows, meaning sickness and pains. We talked about this last Sunday morning. If you weren't here with us, I encourage you to get that message because the things that we say will build on that. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Talking about sins. He was bruised for our iniquities talking about sins now the reason he mentions sins twice is one has to do with personal sins and the other has to do with the original sin see iniquity is what passed upon all men because adam fell in the garden of eden because adam sinned and rebelled against god but transgressions are personal sins jesus paid the price through his blood same sacrifice same work on the cross for both the original sin that caused death to pass upon all men Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, speaking of Adam, death passed, uh, sin came into the world and death passed upon all men. It's talking about the original sin. That's what opened the door to spiritual death for all of mankind. But we're guilty of individual sins as well. Jesus paid the price for those with his own blood too. So it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, that's that Hebrew word shalom, well-being in every area was upon him and with his stripes we are healed now if that's the only place in the bible that it said that we could not build a bible doctrine off of it but we have two other places in the new testament that refer to what isaiah said and identify isaiah to be speaking of sickness and disease look with me over to to matthew chapter 8 we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning Because I want you to see some things that the Bible establishes as the will of God for you. Beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 8. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. 
And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. This is referring back to what Isaiah said. Matthew after the resurrection of Jesus. As an eyewitness to Jesus healing ministry on the earth. He was one of the original twelve. Speaks by the Holy Ghost by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. To things that he probably didn't understand at the time. But now through the revelation of the spirit. He does understand that Jesus healed all that were sick. To fulfill what Isaiah was saying. But what did Isaiah say? Isaiah said Jesus would take our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. Now look with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's the second reference in Matthew 8. 1 Peter chapter 2 is the third. In the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. Peter, speaking of Jesus, said in verse 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Talking about the cross. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. By whose stripes you were healed. Now he's talking about what Isaiah spoke to, without mentioning Isaiah, but he's talking about the same principle. So here's the third witness, one in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament. That we can and should build a Bible doctrine on. And that is that the same price that Jesus paid on the cross. The shedding of his blood for sins. Was paid for sickness and disease. Now folks there are some things that we know about God. And some things that I think that we have to. uh, Accept. And I I think everybody does accept it in principle. Or in, in, uh, um, in the idea of it at least. But without a certain understanding of God, certain foundational truths about God, we can never know him. One of those truths is that God doesn't change. God has to be the same all the time. Another is that God is no respecter of persons. Those are really parts of the same thing. But if God never changes, that means God can never be a respecter of persons. He can't do something for you that he won't do for me. Now, the only way that we can receive from God, another one of these Bible principles is spoken to over and over again, is that we receive from God by one means, and that's by faith, not by works, not by what we do, not based on us or ourselves or anything that we accomplish, but faith, this principle called faith, the acceptance of what God's word says. Now, faith is spoken of in the Old Testament as obedience. God said over and over again, if you keep my commandments and do that which is right in my sight, then I will do this. Well, for us, it's not a matter of what God will do for us. It's It's a matter of what Jesus has done for us. So our obedience is to believe. There's no difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's both obedience, but obedience looks different in the two covenants. Obedience in the Old Covenant, excuse me, Obedience in the Old Covenant was a matter of what you do will bring about a result. Obedience in the New Testament or the New Covenant is because of what Jesus has done. Here's what we must accept and adhere to. Same thing. Our work under the New Covenant is to believe, to have faith. Well, if God is not a respecter of persons and God never changes, then what we see as the will of God concerning the subject of healing or sickness 
healing of sickness and disease, or any other subject for that matter, would be the same in the New Testament as it would be in the Old. God doesn't change because Jesus came. Jesus came because God never changes. So if we can identify what God's will was in the Old Covenant, if it's true that God never changes, it has to be his will today. Isn't that right? Well, let's see what the Bible says about the Old Covenant. The first time that we see healing spoken to concerning the people of God had to do with the Passover. You remember that Israel was in bondage to Egypt for 400 and something years. And God, the time came when God raised up Moses and said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Well, you remember Pharaoh wouldn't do it. He wouldn't let the people go. Excuse me. Let's see if I can get rid of that. I got started on my marshmallow peeps early. (laughs) Not really. I hate those things. I've always hated those things. My kids love them. I never could figure that out. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see when God was delivering Israel from the bondage of Egypt. We see in the Old Testament, book of Exodus, that through the Passover, God brought healing to the people. Psalm 105 verse 37 says it this way. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among their tribes. Now, these were people that numbered in the millions of, of, there were millions of them. We don't know exactly how many. Most estimates go anywhere from two to seven million people. Now, let me ask you this. What crowd of people could you get that numbered that many and not find some sick people in them? It would be virtually impossible, statistically impossible, for there not to be any sick people among the children of Israel. So something had to have happened to bring them forth with silver and gold. We know what that was. He told them to go borrow of their neighbors, spoil their enemies, get payment literally for serving them for those 430 years. And it said that he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among among their tribes. Not one. There was not one person that was sick or halt, or lame, or maimed, or or infirmed in any way that would prevent them from the journey that God had for them to go to the promised land. Now, in Exodus chapter 15, after God leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, I want you to see this one. The first thing that we have record of in the Scripture about events that take place after the parting of the Red Sea and the coming through in dry ground and Pharaoh's armies chase after him and you know the sea comes together and destroys the greatest army on the face of the earth. In Exodus chapter 15, it tells us that as soon as they came out, as soon as they sang their song of deliverance, they crossed to the wilderness of Shur and they came to the place where there was water but it wasn't drinkable. It says there were bitter waters. Now we don't know if that means just bad tasting or if it means poisonous, it could be either one. But it, irrespective, regardless of what the case was, the Bible says God told Moses to, ca- to find a certain tree which represents Jesus on the cross and to cast that tree into the waters and the waters were made sweet. Well, let me just read it in verse 25. And he cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and when he had cast into the waters, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance And he proved them. A statute and an ordinance means a law that doesn't change. Well, what law doesn't change? 
He's already cleaned the waters. He's already made the waters pure. What statute and ordinance is connected to this? Verse 26, he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which have brought, which I have brought, literally aloud, upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, folks, the only thing Israel knows about God at this point is that there have been ten plagues that have taken place in Egypt, and now they're free. That's all they know. There has been no law. The law will not be delivered for some two, two and a half years from this point in time when God gives it to Moses. They know the history of their forefather, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and such. They knew that there were stories about how God chose them and God helped them and blessed them through their forefathers. But they're not worshiping God. In fact, there are many occasions in the, uh, in the wilderness where they turn back to worshiping the gods of Egypt. They've been indoctrinated into the Egyptian culture. They're not worshipers of God. They're not followers of God. They're not keepers of any of God's commandments. They don't have any commandments to keep. And so the first thing that God reveals himself to Israel, the one who delivered them, is I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now the word healeth is an interesting term because in the tense that it's used, it can mean one of two things. It can mean forever the healer, or it can mean the one who healed, past tense, healed you. So it's possible that it's speaking to the Old Testament, I mean to the, to the historical event, that which happened just several days earlier, about where healing came through the Passover. I'm the one that healed you. I'm the one that brought you forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among you. I'm the one that changed your feeble to healed and strong. And or it can mean I am the one that heals you forever. Now, I personally think it means both. Because there are words and there are tenses of this word that could have been used that would mean one or the other but not both. So the Holy Ghost specifically chose a word that can be used in the past tense or in the present and future tense as well. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Now, which way he's saying this, I'm not really sure. I'm inclined to believe for certain that he's saying, I'm the one that healed you. Because that would mean something to them. There would be a lot of people in these two to seven million people that would recognize either their own healing or somebody that was healed that was close to them. And for God to identify himself as saying, I'm the one that did that. And now here I am doing another work. That healed the waters for you to be able to have something to drink. Would be very significant in my thinking. And notice something else about this event. Again the first thing that God reveals himself to his people. Is as the healing God. Notice he connects it to obedience to the word. Notice he does not say I'm the one that that blessed Abraham. And so don't worry I'll take care of you forever. You don't have to bother about a thing from now on. He connected it to obedience to his word. The connection is with the covenant that he made with Abraham through the keeping of the word of God. Now, we don't see anything else in the scripture for 20 years concerning sickness and disease. But in Numbers chapter 16, 20 years after this event, 20 years after they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt, we've got the rebellion of Korah. 
Now, Korah was a man that decided that God shouldn't be, uh, that Moses shouldn't be the only one speaking for God, that he's a leader of the children of Israel. He's one of the leader of the tribes of Israel. He's a man of great stature. And so he should be able to say what God's saying to and tell the people and so forth. It seems like the devil has always caused people to raise themselves up or influence them to raise themselves up to hold a position with God that God hasn't chosen. Moses lamented over this. He said, you'd have no idea what you're doing. But he says, okay, tomorrow, here's how we'll tell who's, with, who's the one chosen by God and who's not. He said, you gather everybody that's on your side. And he had done a lot of talking around and gathered up a lot of people of his tribe and his family and friends and so forth to support him and his usurping of authority. And then Moses said, and take 250 of your leaders and have them put incense in a censer. It's a little pot that you put incense in and you burn them coals that would make a smell that was intended to be acceptable before God. And he said, and I'll have Aaron, my servant, the priest, to light his censer as well. So the next day comes around. Moses stands up before the people and he says, okay. Now, God's going to show you who he's for and who he's against. He said, now, if these people died a natural death... That wouldn't prove anything. But if the earth swallowed these people up and then closed up on top of them, then you'd know who God's chosen and who God's for. Right? Then he says to the people, if you're not with them, better separate yourself from them real quick. So everybody starts scattering. The earth opens up, swallows up Korah, all of his tents, all of his possessions, all of the people that are with them, and then closes up on top of them. And then fire falls down from heaven and burns up the 250 men that are holding censers. And then they dismissed. (laughs) What do you do? The question has been answered. The problem was that the next day, the children of Israel woke up and started murmuring against Moses, saying, Moses, you've killed a lot of people. And God says, Moses, step back. And Moses, without God telling him to do it, Moses tells Aaron, as quickly as you can, put incense in the censer and run through the camp of Israel. Now, the Bible says that before Aaron got started, there was a plague that began. Now, we don't know exactly what the plague was, but the plague killed 14,700 people before it was stopped. Now, we don't know how many people died with Korah the day before. We know the 250 men that were carrying censers. But we don't know how many people were swallowed up in the earth. But 14,700 people were affected by the plague because they murmured against Moses For obeying God. Folks, disobeying God, speaking out against God and against his people used to be a real serious thing. Now under the age of grace, you can get away with it for a little longer. But I think it's still serious. If there are things I don't know about, I say I don't know. But I don't speak against somebody doing something that I don't know is wrong. And I would recommend you take that same position. 
So anyway, Aaron starts running through the camp. And the Bible says that God accepted the incense that he burned as an atonement. Now, it's interesting that the word atonement is used because the word atonement literally means a covering over of sin. The important point to realize is this. If there had been no sin, there would be no atonement that would be accepted. If sin was not the issue, then an atonement would not be made, could not be made. But the Bible says that God accepted the incense that Aaron burned running through the camp to make an atonement for the people. And the plague was stayed. Now, here's what that has to mean. If sickness or disease or whatever this plague was had remained on any of the people, even one, it would be impossible to say that the plague was stayed. We might say it slowed down. But in order for the Bible to say that the plague was stayed, it had to have brought healing and restoration for every person that was still alive. So what do we see? Well, we see in the Passover that it was God's will for healing to be for all of his people. We see in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, I am the Lord that healeth thee, has to include all of his people. Now we see that the atonement that was made in Numbers chapter 16 had to be for all of the people for the plague to be stayed. So that means it was the will of God at least 3,500 years ago for all of the people to be provided with healing and health. Now, the next time we have any event that takes place in the Bible is 19 years after Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 21, where the people start murmuring against Moses again. And the Bible says that fiery serpents came into the camp. The King James says the Lord sent fiery serpents. But Moses says in other places, the Bible refers to very specifically that God led them through the wilderness where these fiery serpents already were. And so as the people murmured against God and against Moses, these fiery serpents came in and killed and bit the people. And many people died. So God told Moses how to fix the problem. Moses goes to God and God says, here's what to do. He said, make a fiery serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And he said, everyone that looketh upon it shall live. Everyone that looketh upon it shall live. So Moses does this. This is the same fiery serpent on the pole that jesus identifies with in john chapter 3 he says as moses lifted up the fiery serpent in the in the wilderness there's a serpent of brass in the wilderness so also shall the son of man be lifted up from the earth and if i be lifted up i shall draw all men unto me so jesus identifies moses action in the old testament of making the fiery serpent of brass and lifting it up as being a type of him on the cross that would bring redemption for mankind so the bible says in numbers chapter 21 That everyone that beheld the serpent lived. That has to mean that everyone that was sick, that was willing to obey the the, um, conditions that God set about looking upon the fiery serpent on the pole, was granted healing and health. There's no way that that could be stated that way otherwise. Everyone that beheld lived. So again, in the Numbers 21 incident, we see that it was the will of God for everyone to receive their healing now he didn't control whether or not they looked he didn't control whether or not they kept their eyes on the serpent serpent of brass on the pole i mean but he provided healing for every one of his children so again we see another example that at least at that point in time it was the will of god for everybody to take part of and have access to healing and health
Now, if God never changes, why would that change? Fast forward several hundred years later, Psalm 103, David writes in the Psalm, the understanding that all the Jews had concerning God and his provisions. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless his holy name and forget not all of his benefits. What benefits are you talking about, David? Who forgiveth all thy iniquities and who healeth all thy diseases. Now, folks, you need to understand something. The idea that God saves, meaning forgives sins, but doesn't heal today is a modern day theology. It is not part of the Jewish understanding of the Savior. The Jews understood that sickness was a result of sin. You remember Peter in John chapter 9 comes to Jesus and says, they see a blind man born blind from birth, or blind from birth, I should say. Peter asked the question, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He understood that sin was the cause of his blindness. The Jews get that. They've always gotten that. They've always understood that. It's the Gentile church, primarily the Western Gentile church, that argues against it. But it's never been the case in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 105, verse 37 that we referred to, he brought it forth with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among them. We don't know when that psalm was written. We don't know if it was written at the time as an eyewitness account of that which had just taken place, or if it was written hundreds of years later as a historical understanding by the Jews of what happened at that first Passover. But either way, it identifies that the Jews understood that forgiveness and healing work together. That is so important. Because it's only unbelieving Christians that will tell you otherwise nowadays. So David says, God's will is the same concerning sin and sickness. He forgives all iniquities, forgives all your sins, and heals all your diseases. So in David's day, he understood that the will of God was the same concerning sin and sickness. That just as God wanted everybody's sins to be forgiven in his day, redeemed, remitted in our day. Just in the same manner, he wanted everybody to be free from sickness and disease. Now that brings us to Jesus. Now, remember the the point that Jesus said that he came to the earth to fulfill. He said, I came not to the earth to do my own will, but do the will of the Father. That means anything and everything Jesus did, anything and everything Jesus said was for one and only one purpose, and that was to reveal the will of God to mankind. So whatever Jesus does concerning sickness and disease was done to reveal God's will concerning sickness and disease. Let's look at some. Look with me over to to, uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those that were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had palsy, and he healed them. Now, notice he healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. Not one is left out. He didn't come to one that was too hard or too big or too serious. He never came to anybody that had something too long for him to handle. 
He never came to somebody that was too critically ill for the healing power of God to redeem and restore. And all the people that came to him were healed. Not one left out. Now it seems interesting to me that with the modern day church saying so often and have have taught for years that sometimes God uses sickness and disease to teach you something and that if you find yourself in that place that you should just glorify God in your sickness. It seems interesting to me that Jesus who came to reveal the will of the Father to us in every area, sickness and disease included, never found one that he said to just be patient. It's God's will for you to have this disease. But we're supposed to accept the teaching of the modern day church over the example of Jesus, the Son of God. Somebody explain that to me. We've already mentioned Matthew chapter 8, but I want you to see it again. Matthew eight sixteen. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Not one was left out. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, I know that, that uh, many times people get hung up with the words that it might be fulfilled. And there is some teaching in the modern day church that Jesus fulfilled the work of God concerning sickness and disease when he was here on the earth. But keep that in mind. I'm going to prove that or disprove that in just a moment. Look with me to Matthew chapter 9. Verse 35. And it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It goes on to say, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Therefore said he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers unto his harvest. Now let's keep reading in chapter 10. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. In other words, it tells us that not only did Jesus heal every sickness and every disease among the people, but when he saw that the work was too great for him to complete, he couldn't get to everybody. He was moved with compassion and ordained 12 others with the same healing power, the same power to cast out devils, and sent them forth to do the same work that he was doing. All is a revelation of God's will concerning healing of sickness and disease. Now who's authorized to say that that was just for Jesus' day? Who's, who's authorized to say that the will of God has changed from what Jesus revealed it to be? I'm certainly not. Look with me to Matthew chapter 12. Remember I told you to keep in mind Matthew 8. That it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Let me prove to you what this means. Verse 15 it says. But when Jesus knew it. He withdrew himself from thence. And great multitudes followed him. And he healed them all. Not one was left out. 
Now, some would say that Jesus came to the earth and he healed sickness and disease to prove that he was the son of God, to prove that God had power over sickness and disease. Well, let me ask you a question. Why would he have to heal everybody then? If that's his purpose, then just healing a few that had the major sicknesses or diseases of the day would prove that point. He wouldn't have to prove, he wouldn't have to heal everybody to prove that he had power over sickness. The fact that he healed them all tells us that it went more, went further and involved a lot more than just proving his power. But as Jesus said, to show forth the will of God. Now let's keep reading here. As I said, remember Matthew eight sixteen. He healed them all, healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, verse 17 goes on to say, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Let me show you what that phrase, that it might be fulfilled, means. Again, verse 15, when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and he charged them that none should make him known. He's not trying to build a name for himself, folks. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench till he be sent forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now let me ask you a question. If this was the fulfillment of what Isaiah said, then the only Gentiles that could trust in the name of Jesus were the ones that were alive in his day. Yet remember, Jesus was not sent to the Gentiles. He told the Syrophoenician woman, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it was only her faith that crossed that purpose that Jesus had in his ministry. So my point is very simply this. If Jesus fulfilled what Isaiah said about himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses by healing the sick people of his day here on the earth, then Jesus had to fulfill what Isaiah said about in his name shall the Gentiles trust, trust while he was here on the earth, which means you can't be saved. Assuming you're a Gentile. No, in fact, this term that it might be fulfilled means the beginning of the fulfillment. See, as far as God is concerned, once Jesus came to the earth to do the work of redemption, the work of redemption was done. That's why the Bible says in the fullness of time, Jesus came to the earth. Because as soon as Jesus set foot on the earth, he set foot on the earth for one and only one purpose. And that was to complete or fulfill God's plan of redemption that had been planned from the foundations of the world. So everything Jesus did was a part of the fulfillment. Now, when was it finally finished and fulfilled, completely fulfilled? When he was raised from the dead. After he did the work on the cross, after he shed his blood, and after he was raised from the dead and sat at the right hand of God the Father. And so what does that mean? That means now the Gentiles shall trust, can trust in his name. But the beginning of that fulfillment started when Jesus was here on the earth. In the same way, Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, he healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled. It was the beginning of the fulfillment that would be finished or completed when his work on the cross was done. 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Can you see it? I can show you some other examples too, but I think this one suffices. Jesus didn't finish the work of healing here on the earth. He just started it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, I think is the next one. Beginning in verse 13, it says, When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. Notice that. Moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. He was moved with compassion toward them and healed their sick. Now, without going into a great bit of detail about this, let me point something out. There are several times... Where Jesus was moved with compassion and healed. One of the times was in Matthew chapter 8. The only time we have anybody questioning God's will on healing. There was a leper that came to Jesus and said, Master, if you will, you can heal me. And Jesus moved with compassion, immediately stretched forth his hand and fixed his understanding. He answered his question. He said, I will be thou clean. Now the only time. That we have record of in the scripture. Of anybody that questioned the will of God. Jesus to reveal the will of God to us said I will. Now who's authorized to change God's Jesus answer of I will to I won't. Who's authorized to change that. That answer I will be thou clean. Where Jesus said himself that he was revealing the will of the father. To know I'm sorry. This sickness is upon you for some greater purpose. Who's authorized to do that? Here's the second point I want you to see about this. If Jesus was moved with compassion and healed their sick. If healing does not belong to the church today. Then we'd have to say that God's healing mercy has been modified. Yet the Bible says in Hebrews 8, 6 that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Well, if his healing mercy or his mercy to heal has been modified, if his compassion is less toward the sick today than it was when Jesus was on the earth, it's certainly not a better covenant to them, those that are sick. Who's authorized to say that the compassion of the Lord to the sick is less today than it was in Jesus' day? The Bible says over and over again, his mercy never fails. That would have to include healing mercy too then, wouldn't it? We're right here in chapter, uh, chapter 14 of Matthew. Skip down with me to the 35th verse. I'll start in verse 34. When they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret... And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased. They found every sick person in that region of the country. And besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. I want you to notice that Jesus in revealing the will of the father concerning sickness and disease didn't leave one person out. Not one So we see that in the 3,500 years ago, it was the will of God to heal all that were sick. 
We see that in David's day, it was the will of God to heal all that were sick. We see that in Jesus' day, it was the will of God to heal all that were sick. Let me show you one other. I think it's in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him. Everybody in the crowd. I don't know how big the crowd was, but the Bible calls it multitudes. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue or power out of him and healed them all. Here's Jesus revealing the will of the Father by healing them all. Now, folks, you need to understand some things. First of all, Jesus told his disciples the last night that he was with them at the Last Supper. John chapter 14, he said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. He told them, it's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the comforter can't come. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the day of the church, the church age, the day we live in, that which began following his resurrection, would be the day when the Holy Spirit would be installed into the office of comforter. Not just the comforter for him. He had been a comforter for Jesus when he was here on the earth. And Jesus did his healing works and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Ghost. But that power of the Holy Ghost wasn't available to everybody. He delegated it part-time for a short term to the 12 and then to 70. But nobody else had the access to the power of God to heal the sick. But now Jesus is saying... These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Not just you 12, but anybody that believes in my name. Why would we expect the power of the Holy Ghost to be greater in the day before he was installed into office than the day after? See, for somebody to say the day of miracles or the age of healing is past is to say the Holy Ghost is less powerful or less important now than he was when Jesus was here on the earth. Yet Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away because if I don't go away, then the Holy Ghost can't come. And he's going to be the one that empowers you to do the same works and greater works. Now, I know a lot of times people focus on the greater works and I've heard people say, well, the greater works is getting people saved. Okay. I'm not going to argue that point. But Jesus didn't just say you'd do greater works. He said you'd do the same works and greater works. Now, who in the world in their right mind would claim that the same works did not include healing the sick? There's tons in the scripture, in the gospels, about Jesus healing the sick. But now, all of a sudden, that part's supposed to be cut out? When Jesus said himself, "The, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do. What about the day of the church? What about the church age? Well, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching at Cornelius' house... In verse 38, he seems to understand that it means sickness and disease was paid for by the blood of Jesus, just like sin. He said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The early church understood that healing was a part of the package. 
Who was authorized to take that away from us? Folks, I want you to see one last thing. In Mark chapter 6, I'm sorry, it's Mark chapter 9. The Bible tells us a story of about a man that brought his son to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there. And so he's dealt with by the nine apostles that are left. Three of them were with Jesus at the mountain of transfiguration. And they tried to cast the devil out of this little boy, but they were unable to. When Jesus comes to the, comes upon the scene, he sees the crowd and he says, what's going on? And the father says, I brought my son to your disciples. He's possessed with the devil. And they tried to cast him out, but they couldn't. And Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless generation, how long must I be with you? Bring him unto me. The father comes to Jesus with his son. And the devil tore the little boy in front of Jesus. And Jesus asked the question. He said, how long has it been this way? And the father said, since he was just a young boy. He said, and oftentimes it throws him into the fire or into the water trying to destroy him. And here's what the father said. He said, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and heal him. And Jesus turns it back on him. He said, if you can believe, all things are possible to them that believes. Now, here's what I want you to see about this story. First of all, we know that it was a failure on the part of the disciples. And Jesus explains the reason for the failure. It was because of their unbelief. So you've got a failure to receive healing. I want to let that sink in for a minute. You've got a failure to receive healing because of unbelief. But does that failure change God's will for the young boy to be delivered? Not in the least. Jesus tells the father, if you can believe, all things are possible. Forget the disciples. Forget what they did or didn't do that was right. Forget about them. What can you believe? And the father answers and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus ministers to the little boy and gets him delivered. So even in cases where there is a failure to receive healing because of unbelief, it's still the will of God for them to be free. Now, here's the reason I mention that. Because so much of modern-day church doctrine, Western world church doctrine, is based on a failure to receive. Well, we prayed and it didn't work, so I guess it's not God's will. Your prayer, whether successful or a failure, has nothing to do with the will of God. It can't change the will of God. And it is the will of God from the beginning of the Scripture all the way through the days of the church that all would be healed by the same blood that paid the price for sin. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I want to point something out to you. That is. Grossly overlooked in the modern day church. And it, along with so many other scriptures, answers the question definitively about God's will concerning sickness and disease. God's will for all of his children to be healed. Verse 23, you're familiar with this one. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we read that verse of Scripture, and we're conditioned to think that he's talking about remission of sins. And he is. But we're conditioned to pigeonhole it. We're conditioned to say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God provided for your sins through the redemptive work of Jesus. But I want you to understand something. Paul knows that it's an all-inclusive salvation. Paul goes on to say, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. The word propitiation is a real tough word in the English because it literally means the mercy seat. You remember in the Old Testament when the Ark of the Covenant was created, God told him to put a plate or a lid on top of the mercy, on top of the, uh, the Ark that was called the mercy seat. The reason that that was important is that where the, that's where the blood that was shed for the Old Testament Day of Atonement was placed. It was placed on the mercy seat. And what it means is this is the victim that acts as a substitute for mankind concerning his sins. So here where it says God set Jesus forth to be a propitiation, the best way for me to understand it is to insert the word substitute instead. It doesn't literally mean substitute, but that's the thought behind it. It means mercy seat. But the reason the mercy seat is important is because blood was shed by a substitute for you to reap the benefits and the blessings. Does that make sense? So let me read it that way. Whom God has set forth to be a substitute through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. Notice it's remission of sins, not atonement. For the remission, removal of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare at this time. Please notice verse 26. We think the important part is verse 25 that talks about the blood of Jesus. But notice he explains why it's important in verse 26. To declare at this time. Here's what the substitute means. Here's what the shedding of, of Jesus' blood means. To declare at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Notice there were two things that were important to God. First, to justify mankind through the blood of the shed blood of Jesus. But the second part, which is equally as important to God, not so much in our thinking, because most people don't realize it, don't understand what's being spoken of. But the second thing that was important to God, equally important to God, was that God make justification for man in a just or holy manner. God couldn't cut corners. Now think about if God could have cut corners. God said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the earth. Then Adam fell. That would have been a perfect time for God to come back and say, well, I'm taking the authority back over the earth. It's not the way I wanted it, but man messed up, so I'm taking it back. But God couldn't take it back because he had already given it to man. God can't cut corners. He can't violate his word. When he said, let man have dominion, man had dominion. So now he has to find a different way to justify man by the rules that he set up through his own words. Here's what that boils down to in the final analysis. That means that unless God was going to include remission of sins in his original plan of redemption, 
he would be unjust to forgive man's sins in the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement could not have been established unless remission of sins was a part of the original and finished and completed plan. Do you understand what I'm saying? There would have been no legal, rightful, or justification, just and holy manner for God to forgive the sins of the Old Testament through sacrifices and the shedding of blood that was not holy. That was not a worthy sacrifice for man's sins. The sin of blood, the, the blood of goats and, and bulls could not suffice for man's blood. It was not a willing, or it was not an equal sacrifice, an equal substitute. Well, then how did God justly forgive the sins of the people? There's only one answer, and that is if the remission of sins, the final payment for man's sins was a part of the plan of redemption that would be finished and completed by Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the only way he could have been just in justifying man. What does that mean concerning sickness and disease? That means it would have been impossible for Jesus to heal the sick on the earth unless healing was a part of the finished and completed work of redemption that Jesus would fulfill. From God's standpoint, from God's point of view, I understand the modern day church doesn't get this, but from God's point of view, the greatest evidence that healing belongs to us now is that Jesus ever healed the sick. And we have numerous examples of where he showed himself to be the master of sickness just like the master of sin. And that plan of redemption was finished when he was raised from the dead. Let me ask you a question. Your future, your destiny, what is it? Is it a spiritual destiny? Is it a physical destiny? Or is it both? Well, it can't be just a spiritual destiny because the Bible says when Jesus comes back, we'll receive redeemed bodies. If it was just a spiritual destiny, we wouldn't need a redeemed body, would we? Well, then what is it? It's both spiritual and physical. The Bible says that we have the Holy Ghost as a seal toward that which is to come. It says that he's the first fruits of our redemption. Well, what's the first fruits of our physical redemption? The sickness and disease that Jesus paid for. The healing that he accomplished when he did the work on the cross. Folks, if you take the Bible as the answer, there is no way you can doubt God's will concerning your healing. You can't do it. Now, you can come up with your own ideas as the modern-day church has done. You can try to explain away failures by things that you don't know as the modern-day church has done. But when you know what the Bible says and the character and the nature of the one who inspired it to be written, you cannot deny that it's always been God's will to heal the sick. You cannot deny that Jesus died for our sins. And he procured healing for our diseases. Now who's our? When the Bible says Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. 
and bruised for our iniquities. Everybody understands that's anybody that will receive. Well, then for whose sicknesses was he wounded? Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, and carried our pains. Who's that hour? Anybody that will believe. It is the will of God for every person on the face of the earth to be healed, just as it's the will of God for every person on the earth to be born again, without exception, in every case. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for making it so clear. We know not everybody will believe or accept it. But you couldn't have made it clearer that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Lord, just as we've received you as our Savior, we receive you as our healer. Just as we believe that you paid the price for sin, even so we still struggle against it when it tries to influence our bodies. We believe in the same manner that you've paid the price for sickness and disease, even though we sometimes have to resist that just like sin. We recognize that the presence of sin does not mean that we weren't born again when we confessed you as our Lord and Savior. In the same manner, the presence of sickness does not mean that we're not healed when we confess you as our healer. We thank you, Father, for healing works that are done in our lives. We thank you, Father, that everyone under the sound of my voice accepts you and takes you by faith in your word to be healer just as much as Savior. You redeemed us from sin. You redeemed us from poverty. You redeemed us from sickness and disease. Once and for all, the work has been done. We thank you, Father, that healing belongs to us. We thank you, Father, that we are healed. Say this after me. I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sins. Therefore, I confess him as my Savior, the Redeemer from sin. I also believe that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease. All sickness and disease. Therefore, I confess Jesus as my healer. Thank you, Father, that according to your word, I am healed. Sickness, go in Jesus' name. I declare that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The great Baptist pastor, F.B. Meyer, said this one time. He said, if the whole world lined up on one side and said, I'm not saved, I'd stand on the other side and say, I am. In the same manner, I'm going to add it this way. I'm going to appropriate it this way. 
If the whole world lined up on one side and said, I'm not healed, I'm going to say I am. Because the word of God declares it. Amen? I believe that kind of attitude, I believe that position, brings healing and health to bear in our bodies every time. Let's all stand together. Folks, I hope you already believe these things. I hope that I'm not doing anything except reminding you of things that you already see and know. I'm not necessarily trying to teach you something you don't know. But I have a witness in my heart that the proclamation that Jesus died for our sickness and disease just like he died for our sins is going to cause healing to flow like a river in this place. And it will bring multitudes of people into the kingdom of God. I pray consistently that healing would flow like a river and salvation would rise as the tide. I believe it will be just that way. I've got something stirring in my heart. That there are some wonderful, miraculous, spectacular things that are going to happen. That are going to cause people to run to know Jesus. And I believe they're going to start happening here. That's why I'm teaching these things. I'm not necessarily teaching these things to change you. If it changes you, great. If it teaches you what you didn't know, that's great. But I'm, changing, I'm teaching these things to change the spirit realm, to change the atmosphere. And I believe we're on our way. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for confirming your word with signs following. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus, our Healer. Hallelujah. 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 Father, we declare that this church is a place that's free from sickness and disease. We declare that every person that comes into this place shall be affected by the atmosphere of the Holy Ghost. The healing power of God shall flow in them to affect a healing and a cure in their bodies from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. Whether anybody lays hands on them or not, Father, the healing power of God will flow. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Lord, it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be free from the symptoms and the circumstances. It's so good to know that your word is greater than all. You sent your word and healed us, Lord. And delivered us from our destructions. We love you, Father. We thank you for the plan of redemption that is now complete. Not one bit left to be done. It's already been done for us. We receive it. We believe your report, Lord. We thank you the hand of the Lord is extended toward us. Say it with me. Jesus is my healer. Amen. Well, thank you for being here. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Come on back and be with us tonight. We'll teach some more on healing.